0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award winning books, past and present. We have a new sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, located in Decatur, Georgia. It is possibly the best bookstore in the known universe. It's a local, independent children's bookstore, but they're so much more than just a bookstore. If you've never shopped there, you're missing out. You can call and speak to a bookseller anytime to get personalized recommendations and follow them on social media to keep up with the many, many events they organize. You can find them online at littleshopofstories.com, and they ship all over the world. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And I regret to inform you that today we are discussing The Great Quest by Charles Haas, which was a 1922 Newberry honor book.
1: Yes, it's illustrated by George Varian. I have an annotation from the Newberry and Caldecott Guide put out by ALA. The Great Quest. 12-year-old Josiah tells of how his uncle Seth is tricked by an old friend into selling his shop and buying a ship. Here's the twist. Hold on to your pants. This is not, that part's not in the annotation. Thinking they're going in search of gold, Josiah and his uncle find themselves unwillingly involved in the slave trade and at odds with the crew. Marcy.
0: This book is so bad. Oh, But see, here's the problem that
1: I have, right? It's the first readable one.
0: Yes, so it is both the most readable and least readable of all the books from this season and I, I don't even know where to start because- so I think we should just start
1: with the story itself but first of all I would like to say that 12 year old Josiah sounds like a a fretting 30 year old man in his narration like his voice but he's not he sounds- 12 is he he
0: says he's 12 but he's married when they come back well, I guess you're married young because you, they're only gone marry, for a
1: year and a half. You're Mary young because you're gonna die soon. Where I don't did, know. Where does it say he's twelve? I don't. It says it in the annotation.
0: The, I, mean, I, I think the that actually says wrong. it in the
1: book. I don't know if it actually says it in the book. In my opinion,
0: he cannot be 12.
1: <laughs> okay. So he's supposedly a teenager and according to the annotation, he is 12, but we can't find in the text that he, his actual age. Um, and contextually,
0: and, like I personally, I, I believe that he cannot be.
1: Well, but also the voice for him, the voice for Josiah, like I said, it sounds like a dithering 30 year old man. So Josiah has been orphaned. He's been taken in by his uncle Seth Upham, who is a owns a shop and sells like dry goods and stuff to this town
0: yeah, and he's like kind of a a leading person in the town. He has money and he's like brusque and kind of rude, but he is kind to Joe he's a grump, yeah, and it's understood that he's leaving what he has to Joe you know, whenever. So Joe at least has good prospects. They live in this little New England town in the 1820s and things are going pretty well. And then
1: one day, a mysterious stranger,
0: <laughs>
1: Neil Gleason, sh- shows up. But see, here's the thing is that the mysterious stranger, Cornelius Gleason, known as Neil Gleason, used to be a bad element in the town. And he went away, made his fortunes and came back. And now he's this figure of mystery that very much captivates young Joe, and the description to me it reads as a much older person who's very enthralled and has a huge crush on an, a fellow old person.
0: <laughs> it's it's uh, it's a weird. I mean,
1: Gleason is the way that Gleason is introduced. It is by Joe the, Josiah, the main character, noticing him, and. It is from head to toe a description of what he's wearing, that he seems to be romantically brooding under the shadow of a tree. And it just has this read, it reads as this almost like a romance description like in a romance book
0: well so and it's very mysterious because neil gleason is able to hold something over joe's uncle in a way that is unprecedented because joe's uncle is like very self-important and he's rude to people and he gets his way and he orders people around but he's just completely cowed by this new person who makes these references to something that he knows that could ruin joe's uncle and joe's uncle is just totally like deflates and does whatever he says and whatever he says turns out to be in a dramatic way selling off all of his earthly goods, cashing in mortgages, selling his shop, selling his house, buying a boat and outfitting it for a mysterious journey for a a secret cargo. And so, and so he's selling away Joe's future. Yeah. Yeah. And the two men who work in the shop, who are Arnold Lamont and Sim Mungo, wait, is that right? Muzzy. Sim Muzzy. I can't read my own handwriting here. Muzzy. Muzzy. (laughs) Sim Muzzy go along for the ride because basically, you know, by selling the shop... He's, like, selling their jobs, too. So they have the choice to stay and work in the shop or come along for this mysterious and insanely profitable journey that's going to make them all richer than kings, you know. Do you think Uncle Seth knew? I, I don't know. I mean, from the narrative, just Joe does not know. No, I think Joe does not know. Joe gets an inkling sooner than other people, I think, but... I think that the uncle is so afraid of being outed by Neil to the village for whatever mysterious thing he holds over his head, which turns out to be killing someone, actually, that he is lying to himself to the point that even if he does know, he doesn't know. <laughs> hmm. Well, okay, so
1: it comes time for them to—they've outfitted the ship— and they've spent an enormous amount of money, and it comes time for them to start on their journey. And Gleason, it turns out, big surprise, is still a bad guy.
0: Yeah. He just gets worse and worse behavior-wise and the way he treats people and kind of he's been flattering Joe all along to kind of get in his good graces and help make like, grease the wheels of making all this happen. And as soon as he has his way, he starts treating Joe like crap. And he's been treating the uncle like crap the whole way. So it doesn't take very long for them to sort of see his true personality come out. Yeah. And they eventually all get on the boat. They get to Cuba
1: uh, where they find out that there is no treasure. And then they find out that the actual reason for the voyage or the people who didn't already know was to go to Guinea and kidnap African
0: people to sell his slaves. Now, and here's the weird thing too, is that really it does turn out that there is a treasure. Yeah. So like this this plot point here seems so unnecessary.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I was grateful for it because it delayed the inevitable onslaught of racism and creepiness that I knew we were yeah. going toward, but also, yes, it was a dead end. It was a red herring. It didn't really bring much to the the book. It felt like one of those things where the book wasn't long enough, so they they needed to have <laughs> they needed to have like a little extra content or you know, at the time, the editor and and Hawes really felt like they were they were telling you even more like it was more drawn out process of saying how bad Gleason is like yes. oh he's a liar
0: he's a lie he really is a liar you know I think and also in lieu of getting into the specifics of the atrociously racist details of the rest of the plot mm-hmm. suffice to say they go from Cuba to Africa where they. Engage on this like quote unquote great quest, which turns out to be to retrieve what I assume are diamonds from somebody they left in Africa when their boat floundered before, but also to kidnap a whole bunch of of people to sell in the slave trade. And they meet a girl whose dad is a missionary and they go on this harrowing journey where they're being attacked back. Just just try to get back uh, just to try to get back to their boat and get back home.
1: So this also this white missionary's daughter, uh, she also has a a slave slash servant of her own.
0: Oh, but he's um, a good one. He's a good one. He, oh god. She's beloved and he's faithful. Oh god. Oh my oh god. god. So okay. I'm gonna go up front and say this book is irredeemable. The amount of racism in this book is unforgivable, and I'm sorry that I read it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it says to the point. I have no read-alikes or read
1: better. I have nothing because I just can't even connect this to anything else. It's it's at first it was kind of like I said it was the most readable so far of them.
0: It is, and like, so the I actual was like, writing is yeah. is good. I was like,
1: I was like, okay, you know, reading, reading, and I hadn't read the annotation yet. <laughs> So I was reading, and then I was like, oh, holy shit. Oh, holy shit.
0: And then I was like, oh, God, no. (laughs) Yeah, because at first you're like, okay, he's trying to show up the difference between how truly abhorrent this this guy Gleason is and his friends compared to the main character and his uncle. But the more you read, the more you realize that even though, yes, Gleason and the bad guys are – Truly, truly horrible, and the amount of the n word used in this book is unreal. The good characters, who he clearly is trying to portray as noble and and good, are equally horrendously racist. And I, they're stereotypes. He throws an anchor at one time that belonged to the missionary and the missionary's daughter, and he's like. I forget the exact quote, but it was like this casual racism in the way he throws this anchor because it's a rock tied to a rope. And he's like, must have been tied by the missionary or his daughter because no N-word tied that knot or no Mm -hmm. black tied that knot. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Miami Book Fair is back in November with hundreds of your favorite authors and their new books, and you can see them in person and online. Come to downtown Miami or watch at home for best-selling children's and YA authors like Case and Calendar, Mary Pope Osborne, and R.L. Stein, the master of spooky tales and spine-tingling suspense.
1: Rainbow Rowell, Chris Grabenstein, and Zoraida Cordova will also be there talking about love stories, mysteries, and mythical creatures like grumpy unicorns and fire-breathing chipmunks, plus story time, comics, arts and crafts, science experiments, music, robots, and other family fun in Children's Alley during Street Fair weekend.
0: Stop by to learn how to play the drums, hang out with stilt walkers and balloon twisters, or write your very own poem. And there's lots of other cool stuff
1: to do and see too. Miami Book Fair starts Sunday, November thirteenth. Details at miamibookfair.com. I haven't done enough research on this because I, you know, finished the finished the book in the past few days. I am really curious because there is there is information about, out there about that this book was was came in second on the Newberry yeah vote. Okay, so. Out of the 212 votes that were cast, 22 of them went to this book. Now, this is 1921 or 20, this is 1921, 22. The Civil War had been fought, there had been reconstruction. I know that there was still a large amount of racism, but I also don't understand because there's no inversion, there's no examination. No. Do, not- do you think? Do you think in this time, with these, I'm presumably all white librarians. Is do you think it's a possibility they thought this was progressive? I mean, is there anything in it? Because I couldn't find that. No.
0: Look, I was reading, and this one particular paragraph jumped out at me to the point that I remember what page it was on. I'm going to read it for you. Because oh God! This, God oh. this is supposed to be the good, noble main character who's in on this to try and save his uncle and and abhors the slave trade. Okay. This is the pinnacle of of good behavior and good thinking in this book. He says, I wonder if the whole performance to which we owed our lives was not characteristic of the natives of the African coast, if therein did not lie just the difference between a people so easily led into slavery and a people that never, whatever their weakness, have been, have whatever their weaknesses have been, have yielded to their oppressors. It all happened long ago, and it was my only acquaintance with black warfare, but surely we could never thus have thrown American Indians off this end. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's so offensive. And I apologize even for for quoting that, but it is such a perfect example of what I'm talking about, where this this is the most progressive character in the book. So, and it's
1: not even, okay, so it's not even that it's just racist against black characters, black people, people from Africa, African Americans, because there's that part where they see, they stop in this other town on their journey and they see, is it Cuba? Mm -hmm. And they see people, black people who are free. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's... Comments about that. So there's also racism, like you were just said about American Indians, racism about a, very, a variety of other people who live in the world. Uh, misogyny. You can draw your conclusions. Yes, misogyny. It's just. It is horrendous. It's horrendous. And. I don't really know if I have anything else to say. I mean, the thing is. Other than it's, it's gross. It is. I, I hope I, it's never reprinted. I know it's probably been reprinted a few times since I, 1921, but my, I, I don't, I can't recommend it to anybody and I don't want it to be associated with any newer title. And that's one of the reasons why I was like, I couldn't think of any read, read betters, but I also didn't want to associate any newer titles with it.
0: I mean, sometimes I, you know, we often admit that the Newbery books are problematic and they are. Just because of the fact that they did start in 1922, and and there were a lot of problematic attitudes, and and yet again, there still are. But if you take, for example, one that's gotten a lot of publicity, like uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, the Little House on the Prairie books, you can take those books and look at them and say, okay, racism is never okay, but this was a product of the times, this was her lived experience. If we have conversations about this, we can learn from this, and there's still some literary merit to the book, Right. I cannot say anything like that about this book. The entire premise of the entire book is built on this horrendous racism that's pervasive. It can't there was no it was it's gratuitous. There's no reason for this to be the premise of a book. <laughs> you know there's there's nothing there's nothing I can say about it that makes it worth recommending to anybody, honestly. No, I agree with you, and
1: i I have, I I know that you go hard for the Little House books, and I but I know you understand the problematic elements. But mm-hmm. I have other things to say about them. That oh sure we'll say we when haven't we get gotten to, to those, them. those yet. <laughs> yeah, and I I think you know we'll probably do those those seasons in succession. So we read through them in succession. Yeah, that's the way it plays out in my mind. But I I think that you know. I think it being a product of its time in any case is never an excuse. Like we talked about with Gene Fritz's yes. autobiography.
0: But I guess my point is that like in those cases, you can at least understand why a person would write a story that includes those things because their life included those things, right? I'm not saying it's excusable. I'm just saying it's understandable. But this, there is no understanding. This is just exploiting racism for the sake of an adventure story that has nothing to do with the author's own life in any way. It's just, they think it's romantic and their imagination came up with this story and this was the premise he came up with. It's unforgivable.
1: And I don't, yeah. And I, the only way that I can see that maybe there was some idea that was progressive or that it was like a good idea to even like honor this book because if it hadn't been honored it would have blown away into the wind and no one would even know still even know about it or think about it the idea is maybe that it had characters that weren't just white in it maybe that was the the idea like oh well there's some diversity but it's so poorly presented and so racist and so denigrate like such a denigration. I don't know if you can even call
0: them characters though. Like he never yeah. once refers to them as as people or as humans. Like they're quote unquote the blacks or like the screaming horde. He never like it would I was as I was reading and he kept calling them the blacks. And anybody listening, I apologize. That's the only way he refers to them. So I'm just trying to explain. But I I was like it would be so easy to call them you know, the locals or the tribesmen or, you know, the, the screaming men, any any other descriptive word, any other noun that was true, right, mm-hmm. would be possible because they're, they're people. These are people he's talking about. And especially since the reason that they're even having to defend themselves, these main characters, is because they are slave traders who came in desecrated a king's tomb, you know, killed, like, a holy person, many, many, many other crimes. And, like, (laughs) what the people that are trying to get them are doing is a thousand percent justified. And yet the the main character's great quest is being portrayed as this noble thing. It's horrendous. (laughs) Yeah. I think think
1: ultimately, I mean, I think that we could agree— This book is gross and terrible, and we should just let it blow away into the dust.
0: Yeah, and I'm a little horrified because when I looked up the author, Charles Hawes, I read that he he died early. He died at 34 with only three of his five books published, but his first books were extremely well-received, including this one. So this was his second book. It got a Newbery honor. The book that was... Published after he died, won a Newbery Medal, which I'm kind of dreading reading now. mm mm-hmm. It it almost by it, by definition it would have to be better than this because my God, if it's not, it's, uh, uh, I mean it doesn't have to be right. Oh, it, it is called the dark frigate. Anyway, yeah. I, well, I think I'm it's afraid gonna, to know what
1: a frigate is now. It's an, like, it's, well, it's a boat. It's another
0: boat. So no, but still, I just don't, <laughs> like it's probably some racist horrible term. It's, But it's, you know, he's known for these, like, sea stories, and apparently at the time of his death, like, it was a big deal that he died, and they established an award in his honor that was supposed to be a prize for someone who wrote something in, in the vein of an adventure story equaling his work. Like, people really liked him and liked his work, and they compared him to Robert Louis Stevenson and, you know, Melville, and he wrote about whaling. Like, it's just... It blows my mind that he was so well perceived when this is the content of this book. It doesn't I guess it doesn't blow my mind, but it also is like what an
1: indictment of that time. Yes, right? That this was a lauded book. Like this 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 was absolutely considered almost the best. It was the second best, right, of the inaugural Newbery Medal, and I don't really have anything else to say.
0: About it, I, keep, I keep going back to things that bother me. Like, if, I will say, I will
1: say that it's very interesting. I did a little bit of research on the illustrator George Edmund Varian, and there is almost nothing. Mm. out there about him, except that he was British born and he was an illustrator who worked in America.
0: (laughs) I have a cheap, crappy, like print on demand book that is poorly retyped and has no illustrations. So I can't, I can't pass judgment on that, but the, the illustrations are really, really, they're, they're
1: very nice pen and ink, but they do not belie like, they do not indicate the gross content of this book. Like, mm-hmm. there's a mixture of line and ink drawings and kind of, like, more painterly looking. There's more painterly looking pictures. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing that really – like, there's no illustrations that – in the version I read on online of, you know – the people that they encounter in Guinea, which I was grateful for. At least I didn't have to look at really racist caricature, caricature drawings. Yeah, but still, you know, it's I, like, I can
0: imagine how easily it would be, how easy it would be for an illustrator to go that direction from the from the visual descriptions given. I, I was yeah. dreading. <laughs> so I was <laughs> great. I was grateful for that at least. Let me guess: Are there like weird Maudlin ones about the missionary's daughter?
1: No. I really? actually, I don't think that she shows up in any. It's a bunch of drawings and paintings of dudes. <laughs> Unsurprising. Just like doing dude things, walking around, looking at stuff, fighting on at a table. Like, I mean, it's just not. There's just not that much. Yeah.
0: So for listeners, there's also a love story in here, and that's kind of in quotes too, because and it's, it's not Joe and Gleason. <laughs> no, it's it's the missionary's daughter who he sees once, then speaks to for one sentence once and then can't stop thinking about for the rest of the book. And then she appears not to like talking to him so he says he's going to leave her be and then she starts crying and then they get married. And I that's mean, the I whole don't know how story. How you, I, I don't know how <laughs> you meet you met your uh partner but you know, that's
1: how it happens. That's how the magic happens. <laughs> We'd like to say thanks again to our sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, our local independent children's bookstore, for helping to make this podcast possible, both financially and through their phenomenal programming. They're offering an exclusive promo for our listeners when you shop online at littleshopofstories.com. Just use the promo Newberry Tart to get 10% off your purchase. That's Newberry with one R, -R -R N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T to get 10% off your purchase. For our little history bit on this episode, because I don't really have – I don't have any really likes or read betters, like I said before. I just wanted to go into and name slash give a little background on some of the other books that were published in 1921 that were not honored and did not win the Newbery. So there was a book called American Indian Stories. And when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, no. Because I think we've all encountered that, right? Like American Indian Stories from the 20s, from any time – Before maybe modern time, we're used to them being white savior stories. We're used to them being reductive, written by non-native peoples. But this actually was in—it was published in 1921, and it was essays, uh, childhood stories, and and short fiction written by a Sioux writer and activist. Hmm. Um, And her name was Zitkala-Sa, and it's really fascinating to me that she actually—it was in own voices, right? So that was published in 1922. It was overlooked. Uh, There are
0: two books. The fact that that was available and Mm -hmm. not recognized breaks my heart.
1: Yeah. I mean, it just sounds so interesting to me because it it was like memoir, fiction, you know, and then lore, right? And so it sounds so fascinating. And then there were a couple of books in the Dimsey series by uh, Dorita Fairley Bruce, which is about this girl uh, who goes to like boarding school and stuff. I don't know. There is Ha Jabara La, which was a Bengali story written by Sukumar Ray. And it was originally published in Bengali, but it's it sounds like a really amazing fantasy story. And I think this one's probably not eligible. Just like Rilla of Ingleside was not eligible because they were Canadian? published first. Yeah, they were published first in other countries. So, yeah, there was one of the Anne of Green Gables books, the eighth of nine books, Rilla of Ingleside. I um, love those. I love year. those books. <laughs> I love the I love the Anne of Green Gables books too. But it's been a while since I've read them, so I do not know if there is stuff in there that's uh, really questionable. Uh, there's a German language book that looked really boring. <laughs> it's part of the
0: series. <laughs> that didn't stop anybody this year.
1: About uh, Nest Haken flies from the nest. And it's about, it, it's about a, a quintessential German girl, and she's a, a doctor's daughter. I don't know. It didn't sound good. And the other fiction book that I found that was really interesting is it was called The Royal Book of Oz. And it's the first one that was written after L. Frank Baum's death, and the, but it was actually written by Ruth Plumlee Thompson, and she continued the Oz series through many, many books. This was the first one of hers, hmm. um, even though it was accredited to him. So she was really responsible for keeping the Oz books alive. And then there was some really funny ones I found on like hygiene. There was one called, well, there's Orphan Annie books. There were bubble books midsummer and there was this book called Modern Physiology, Hygiene and Health. Oh dear. (laughs) And it's like and this is a children's book and there's like these pitiful line drawings of like kids sick in bed and the last one I'm gonna talk about is this one called Unsung Heroes and it was by Elizabeth Ross Hayes. And it was actually a book about American heroes that weren't as well known. And it had Frederick Douglass It had Booker T. Washington. So it had a lot of, like, who we know now, uh, it was like kind of stalwarts of black history, right? But it has... It had like a really great array of people who maybe weren't as well known to the general public. And this was all published in 19- 1921. So, one, I want to say all this business about, well, there just aren't native writers, there aren't black writers, like all this stuff that's been, you know, people say this like, well, I don't know any. It's like, People from different identities in America have been writing for years, and it's it's up to publishers and editors, librarians, uh, writers to remember that there is a legacy and to build on it rather than keep, keep saying that it's just starting, right?
0: Yeah, well, and you've got to assume that any committee who would think that this is the second best book of the year with all of its rampant, rampant racism— <laughs> Would of course reject a book that was about Black American heroes. Like it's just sickening that like good literature was probably definitely influenced in that way. You know, because you're right. Mm-hmm. Like it it could have been part of. Uh, this is so obvious, but it it would have helped be a foundation for what people are trying to build now. And it's taken this long. It's it's mm-hmm. depressing. Well, and I, one last thing I want to say
1: is that uh, Unsung Heroes was actually written I, – I named Elizabeth Ross Haynes, and she was an African-American social worker, and it it is a book that solely – that focuses on African-American history. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh. But we need to put a link to that in our show notes. Yeah, we're going to have all this stuff in there. But, you know, I it just galls me that, you know, people will often say, well, I just don't know about children's books of color. Like or or that there weren't color, any. Yeah. Or there weren't any. There just aren't people publishing them. And it's like, no, they've been publishing them for 100 years at least. So, you know, every time there is an entry that, you know, could be considered a new entry in... Children's literature by own voices, we need to make sure and be really aware of that we're building it a tower. We're not starting it the absolute ground, you know, cornerstone.
0: Yeah, it's not new. <laughs>
1: no, it's not new. And so we need to be aware of this and make sure people know this that this is, there's a long history of people of all different backgrounds and, you know, that have been writing. And it's up to all of us to pay attention. And I think that's where the the call to action lies for me in this episode. I do not have any read-alikes. I will not talk about this book again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll probably reference it when we read his other book. The only read-alike that I have is probably, you know, Treasure Island. Not that that doesn't have problematic parts, but at least it's not one solid problematic part. Not that that's saying much, but... ugh. (laughs) ugh, that's what I have to say. (laughs) I literally, I finished this book, I slammed the page closed, and I went, (laughs) wah. Yeah. I just, I'm I'm glad that I did not spend the money to buy a good first printing of this book when I hadn't read it, because my, like, sad reprint is all that this book deserves. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we now know, and we
1: are continuing to trudge along, and unfortunately, it looks like our last book before the winner is going to have some some racism and ableism <sighs> in it, too. <laughs> so, all right, if you're
0: sticking with us through all this, we really appreciate you. With the whole reason that we're doing this season is to get the very first Newbery Books under our belt and kind of really acknowledge the history of this award because we're not trying to shy away from it or let it be whitewashed the way it was for so long. Like not all the Newbery books are good. Like we are ready (laughs) and very willing to admit that, but we appreciate you guys sticking with us as we go through them and discuss why and how they're not good as depressing as that may sometimes be. Join us next time for stuff. We can make it. You guys can do it. Come on. We we can do it. My eyes, my brain. This is a marathon. (laughs) This is a marathon, but you guys can do it, Uh, and and so can we. Maybe. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Please
1: find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton ukulele band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T, dot com.